Hey everyone, how's it going? Laszlo Montgomery here, starting to wind things down on this epic history of tea overview, part 17 today. Oh man, China had such a good run. 2737 BCE, all the way to 1850. 4,587 years. That's a nice stretch by anyone's reckoning. Shoot, Standard Oil only had their monopoly for not even 40 years. It's really amazing that with tea growing in many other places besides China, after so long, no one except the Chinese had figured out how to turn those leaves into teas that were so tasty they inspired a million poems, paintings, and countless literary and artistic works. Not to mention probably no small amount of witty and interesting conversation. The Koreans and Japanese, of course, had their great contributions to tea culture, but it's pretty well known from whom they originally drew their earliest inspiration. In the last episode, I introduced Mr. Robert Fortune, a botanist who lived a very charmed and adventurous life. He had taken on this very dangerous and life-threatening assignment from the East India Company that, as I said, amounted to international espionage. Now, Lou, over in New York City, my longtime China History Podcast listener, supporter, and tea connoisseur extraordinaire, as well as the proprietor of the wonderful tea resource, babblecarp.org, the tea lexicon, and probably many others besides, believe Robert Fortune didn't commit industrial espionage as much as he acted as a 19th century open-source pioneer. That's for all y'alls to decide. There are multiple ways to look at what Robert Fortune did on his first two China trips. We left off last time at part 16 with Fortune halfway home before he could breathe easy and say the magic words, Mission accomplished. Since the ultimate objective was to transplant all the goodness of Chinese tea into Indian soil, getting everything on board the vessel at the China port was only half the battle. They still had to get all the seeds, seedlings, and saplings to their final destination, alive, across the waves, in the dead of winter, and up into the mountains. For this voyage, packed on board, were 13,000 young plants and five gallons of seeds. The contents were divided up amongst four vessels. In this way, if one or two ships went down a Davy Jones locker, there were still two backups. Fortune only went as far as Hong Kong. Once again, the Wardian cases, invented, tested, and proven effective in the field by Fortune, were the unsung heroes of that momentous 19th century saga. Dr. Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward, quite an impact on the world he ended up having with his invention of the terrarium. This invention, by the way, led to the vivarium and the aquarium. Fortune had managed to pick a first-rate crew of gardeners to babysit everything and ensure the integrity of the cases from port to port. One had to be very careful, because once you opened up the Wardian case or a crack appeared, it was over for the contents. When you sealed it shut, the whole system inside the Ward case maintained itself. Fortune had done his job well for the company. Now it was time for him to kick back and let his counterparts in India take over the operation. If Fortune was the perfect man for the undercover job in China, Hugh Falconer was the best man for all that needed to be followed up in India. He was a Scotsman, like Fortune, who 
already enjoyed some fame and repute as an accomplished paleontologist, geologist, and botanist. Falconer had already been in the tea business in India since 1834. He had been chosen by the British officials in that part of India to spearhead the development of tea plantations in India that could compete with and later supplant all Chinese tea imports. He had left India for many years, but found himself back in the employ of the government, managing the tea operation that Fortune was participating in. His role was to be on the receiving end of the cargo, and to manage the transport of the China tea to its first destination, the Saharanpur Experimental Gardens in Uttar Pradesh. That was a good 1,500 kilometers from the mountains of Assam to the east. As the tea made its way up the mountains to its final destination, a bit of a disaster occurred when some dimwit official went and opened up the Wardian cases to take a look inside. But whatever calamity like this, big or small, that the group encountered as they made their way to Saharanpur, well, they got through it by improvising. Once they arrived at the experimental garden station, they were met by Deputy Surgeon General William Jameson. He was serving in his early years of a long stint at the garden that would last till 1875. Of the 13,000 seedlings of green tea bush, a thousand were still alive, but by the time they reached their destination, only 3% of what left China was still viable. So although everything made it on board the vessel okay, in the end they learned from this green tea mission that the transport methods were equally as important as the procurement. In retrospect, Jameson ended up being the weak link in the chain of key players. Falconer blamed the failure of the mission on Jameson, and Jameson pointed his finger at Falconer. It was a huge disappointment and somewhat of a setback. Fortune had gone to a lot of trouble in Anhui and Zhejiang to procure these seeds and plants. Bear in mind, when this was happening... In 1850, all the tea developed in India had been green tea. Black tea is still not quite yet a reality in India. So getting that black tea process just right was important to the tea planters in India working in the employ of the British authorities. What was happening now in the northeast of India was sure going to be important down the line to the people in the sugar business in the West Indies. Their product was destined to sweeten the tea in dozens of millions of teacups the world over. The scandal of the Prussian blue and gypsum being added to green tea as food coloring caused a seismic shift in the popular demand for an alternative brew. The first World's Fair, the 1851 Great Exhibition held in Crystal Palace, turned out to be the perfect venue to announce the matter of these toxic additives being maliciously mixed in with China green tea. With the introduction of this deadly food scandal into the public discourse, it had predictable results. It caused the British public to more quickly accept this new Indian black tea over the Chinese tea they had known all their lives. Black tea was standing in the wings when green tea got that bad rap. And when China tea got a bad name, the Indian tea industry was just getting ready to stand up for the first time. Fortune received word about the setback in the green tea mission while it was still in China. Now this black tea mission, with its goal to 
procure the best specimens he could get his hands on in the Wuyi Mountain area was going to be even more important. A newer and more reliable transport method had to be figured out. Fortune did things different this time around when it came time to ship this new lot of tea. He came up with this brilliant idea to ship the seeds already planted in the soil inside the Wardian cases. And this turned out to be the game-changing, simple solution to the vexing problem. By the time this vessel arrived in Calcutta, the tea seeds packed in the four-foot-by-six-foot glass cases had all germinated, that is to say, of the 20,000 Chinese tea seedlings packed by fortune, 12,838 had survived the trip, sprouted, and were beginning to grow. Fortune tried this transport method again, sending another shipment of planted seeds. Everything arrived in perfect shape. This new method, thought up by Fortune, was not only more effective than shipping actual plants, it was also much easier to execute. Now they had to get them into the Indian soil and launch a multi-billion dollar industry. To do this, Fortune used his relationship with the traders Denton Company to procure the employment services of eight China tea experts. These eight Chinese signed a three-year deal to stay in India and show the plantation workers and management everything there was to know about how they did it back in Fujian. Quoting from Sarah Rose's book, For All the Tea in China Again, the contract these eight men signed went like this, quote, I, whoever, a Chinese tea maker, hereby engaged to proceed to the Himalayan gardens to manufacture tea in the government tea plantations on a monthly salary of $15 or 33 rupees, commencing from such and such a date, and I bind myself to serve for a period of three years. I further engage that I will work diligently as a tea cultivator or in any other manner in which I can be useful, and failing any part of the engagement, I shall be liable to pay a fine of $100 to my employers. I acknowledge having received from Mr. Fortune on the part of the government an advance of two months' wages, or $30. End quote. They left Shanghai in 1851 and sailed the route that took them to India. Fortune risked his life to steal the tea seeds and plants, and he managed to walk out of eastern China with the processing technology as well. And as if this weren't enough, he also figured out how to safely and successfully transport the fragile cargo. Then for his encore, Robert Fortune managed to rustle up eight tea experts from China who were willing to sell out their country for a pittance by transferring this technology to the British in India. And last I checked... The British, or Indian government, never sent any royalty checks to Beijing. When the Chinese tea experts arrived at the location in northern India, they brought, in addition to the knowledge stored in their brains, all the necessary equipment to process the tea. Ovens, woks, and cultivation tools. There they bred and crossbred all the seeds and plants that Fortune brought from China with the local Indian tea plants. Then, through the next several generations, utilizing all the selective breeding techniques learned over time, they gradually got it all right. 
Gregor Mendel was laying the groundwork for modern genetics right around this time, mid to late 1860s. It was a very exciting time in plant genetics. The great minds working on this mini-Manhattan project figured it all out and were able to take full advantage of the topography, climate, and soil of the Bengal region. Into the 1850s and 1860s, the combined efforts of everyone involved got it all up and running. Today, in 2021, of the 4 billion or so kilos of tea production in the world, India now produces a quarter of that. Though China is the largest exporter of tea at 2.4 million metric tons of tea, Assam State in India today is the largest single tea-growing region in the whole world. Around the world, over 3 billion cups a day of tea is consumed. Fresh on the heels of their success in Assam, another new tea town was planned in Darjeeling, several thousand feet above sea level. The Darjeeling operation was seeded with tea seedlings developed at the experimental station, still going strong in Saharanpur. The man in charge in Darjeeling was Archibald Campbell. Campbell, as an experiment, had early on planted seeds in Darjeeling that showed a great deal of promise. This is what led him to higher-ups in authority who took an interest in his early results. In March 1851, Fortune arrived in India to finally see firsthand what was going on with the tea enterprise that he would later be called the father of. He went to Saharanpur first and saw a thriving operation. He got on famously with Campbell, who would be credited together with Fortune for the unparalleled success of the operation. Everything Fortune brought back was carefully planted. Even 80% of the plants considered beyond saving that came from the first green tea shipment made a miraculous recovery. Despite the hardships and missteps along the way, this operation was by all accounts a great achievement, both scientifically and commercially. Seeds originally brought back from the Wuyi mountain area were planted in Darjeeling, and this formed the earliest base stock of Darjeeling tea. The earliest plants experimented on by Campbell had not worked as well, and the flavors were not quite up to par. But in a single generation after planting the tea seeds Fortune brought from Fujian province, the Indian tea industry had grown from a seed to become, next to China, the world leader in production volume, exports, and in pricing as well. And not only that, in the European and American markets, the Indian tea soon bested the competitive product from China. And although this was a subjective matter, the tea tasters working for the British firms considered the black tea from India to be superior in taste as well. Today, Darjeeling tea is called the champagne of teas. Darjeeling is famous for black tea, but you'll see in recent years, growers in West Bengal are also giving the Chinese a run for their money with their green, white, and oolong teas. Darjeeling tea, although it's called a black tea, is technically an oolong because the oxidation of the leaf isn't 100% like in other blacks. After China lost all that export business, they never got it back. In 1879, over 70% of the tea sold in England, still came from China. 
by 1900, this share was down to 10% and falling. The way global demand for tea had grown in the mid to late 1800s, it had become too overwhelming for China's supply chain. China's tea manufacturing industry, as big as it was, was very fragmented, supplied by an intricate network of small-time operations run by temples, individual tea farmers, and families. It was terribly inefficient for the kind of demand that needed to be ramped up to satisfy the rapidly growing 19th century global markets. The way the British set everything up in India, the whole operation was geared towards the most efficient mass production methods possible. They only produced black tea. That was it. You know, I didn't mention Sri Lanka yet because that's a whole other fantastic story regarding their tea industry there. Let me just touch on Sri Lanka, or Ceylon as it was called back in the day. Not many people know this, but it was James Taylor who launched the whole tea industry there. Not sweet baby James, a different James Taylor, another Scotsman of course. He arrived in Ceylon in 1852 and worked with yet another Scotsman, though of Irish parentage, who I'm sure you've all heard of, Thomas Johnstone Lipton of the Lipton Tea Company. Lipton started his business in Scotland, in Glasgow. He started with one shop selling hams, sides of bacon, eggs, you know, one of these kinds of old-time stores. That first shop, located on Stobcross Street in Glasgow, led to several more, and before long, his Lipton markets were found in England and Ireland as well. In 1889, when Thomas J. Lipton got into the tea business, he imported 20,000 chests of tea, and the P.T. Barnum and Thomas Lipton created this public spectacle when the tea arrived at port. He hired a brass band that paraded the tea through the streets of Glasgow. Lipton's company grabbed their initial chunk of market share by aggressively undercutting the competition on price. From May to October 1893, the World's Columbian Exposition, a.k.a. the Chicago World's Fair, was held. Good thing they didn't hold it in the winter. The fair was held on 630 acres in what is today the Jackson Park, Midway, Hyde Park, and Woodlawn neighborhoods of Chicago, where my parents grew up. 27 million people walked through the grounds, and it was at this venue, the Chicago World's Fair of 1893, that Lipton Tea was introduced to the American public. I guess you could say the Americanskis dug this tea. That's pretty much all I ever knew growing up. They were the Kleenex of tea in my early days. They set up a company in New York that later moved to Hoboken, birthplace of Frank Sinatra. The Lipton tea brand is owned since 1971 by the Anglo-Dutch giant Unilever. Thomas Lipton personified the word workaholic. He had a sign that hung on his wall that said, There's no fun like work. You know, he never married. That would joke when people would ask why he, the great multimillionaire tea tycoon, had never gotten hitched. Well, Lipton's pat reply was always, oh, the price of tea was far too low to keep a wife. By 1898, Lipton's company went public. It's the biggest IPO of its day. He only tried to raise two million pounds, but the sheer offering was 25 times oversubscribed. Lipton was knighted by Queen Victoria that same year. Man, he was riding high. 
Lipton, by the way, was the original in a line of famous tycoons who financed yachts in the America's Cup, this oldest of all international sporting trophies. He bankrolled yachts in the 1899, 1901, 1903, 1914, and 1929 America's Cup. Lipton's team never won, but he was always particularly admired by the Yanks because of his excellent displays of good sportsmanship. These appearances in the America's Cup gave the Lipton brand a huge rocket boost during those decades. Alan Bond, Sir Michael Fay, Bill Koch, and Larry Ellison all followed in Lipton's footsteps in using their financial might to win this coveted trophy. Lipton and James Taylor met in 1890, and with Lipton's money and management know-how and Taylor's success in growing tea in the highlands of Ceylon, well, this island began to join its neighbor India as a major world grower of quality black teas. The first seeds to be planted in Ceylon came from tea plants from Assam, the indigenous variety of Camellia sinensis. The British built the tea industry in Sri Lanka very much as they did in India. It's another great history and has spawned all kinds of stories and interesting people. The British did the same thing in Kenya, too. Kenya today is a major world producer of tea. It was brought there in 1903, back in the British colonial days. They brought tea to a lot of places. The stories are well known about the virtual enslavement of millions who toiled on the mountainsides working on the tea plantations. This was the dirty, seamy underside of the tea-growing industry. This aspect was no less odious than the chapter on opium. It's a very well-documented side of the history of tea. By the mid to late 1800s, tea had become a mature and established global enterprise with major exchanges in several cities to buy and sell tea. Up until Fortune's time, tea had always been a sort of a mom-and-pop industry despite the huge volumes of exports beginning in the 1800s. Of course, nowadays in China, you have massive modern tea operations that manufacture bulk commodity-grade teas using all the latest machinery. But the quality remains in the artisanal tea trade. You'll see in all the web dealers of tea and in serious tea shops, all the action is with quality, loose-leaf tea that is still being made in China the old-fashioned way. As expected, China later got into the poppy-growing and opium-manufacturing business, That had an immediate effect on British opium exports. The EIC sent Fortune again as their agent to go check out the operation and procure samples of the China poppies for analysis. After this consulting gig, Fortune was retained by the U.S. government to assist them in building a tea operation in the southern United States. This involved another China trip where Fortune had to go bring back some more seeds. This whole trick had been thoroughly learned and perfected by this time. Between March and August, 1858, Fortune did his work for the Americanskis, but when he brought everything back, his employers gave him his walking papers and said they'd take everything from there. According to what I read, Fortune ended up getting stiffed by the Yanks, and they never paid him. And in the end... All the hard work came to naught, because when the U.S. Civil War began a few years later in 1861, 
It wasn't the best time to be setting up a tea plantation in the South. Robert Fortune made one last trip to China in 1862. This one was as a private citizen. He also visited Japan, and in both places brought back the usual array of plant specimens and curiosities. He died in 1880, living in a state worth 40,000 pounds, which in today's inflated world would come to about $5 million. Robert Fortune gets credit for more than acting as the tip of the spear and bringing Chinese tea plants and know-how to India. He was the first to successfully bring hundreds of species of plants to England, among them bleeding hearts, winter jasmine, white wisteria, 12 species of rhododendron, and the chrysanthemum. Not too many people can say they proved the great Carl Linnaeus wrong, but Fortune did when he discovered green and black tea. Both came from a single species, and had it not been for Fortune observing all the poisonous additives being mixed in with the green tea supply from China. Who knows how many lives might have been lost. Okay, that's all I got for you today. More next time, I assure you. So please do consider coming back. I mean, you made it this far. You may as well stick around to the end. Don't forget, over at the website, teacup.media, you can find a list of all the Chinese terms used in this and every episode, as well as a few different ways to support your humble narrator and all these podcasting endeavors. Once again, that URL is teacup.media. This here is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, California. Do consider coming back next time for another Episodio Fascinante of the Tea History Podcast.